I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plushcare. Plushcare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. You're on Team Human, where we embrace the ambiguity. Strive for those liminal places between yes or no, left or right, and show both the engines of capitalism and the robots of corporatism what we're made of. Playing for Team Human today, David Sachs, Bloomberg columnist and author of Revenge of the Analog, Why Real Things Matter. Human beings are at their most human when they are with other human beings and doing things with them and interacting with all our five senses. David's going to speak with us about the virtues of vinyl, the power of paper, and the real reason human experience transcends the binary. It's time to intervene on behalf of people. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm on Team Human. So have you been confused by the news, by global events, by the uh, rumblings of war and intolerance around the world these last few weeks? And I mean, in particular, these last few weeks? Well, I'm not. I, I feel like I see exactly what's going on here. And it's that we're living in a digital media environment where there are no in-betweens, where there's no tolerance for ambiguity, where everything is either this or that. And as I say that, I feel like I'm describing both the way that computers work, the snap-to grid, the on-off, zero-one no data loss quality of computers, but also the rigid yes-no, up-down, good-bad dynamic of Donald Trump and the people he works with. You know, you think about what's just going on in North Korea right now. We've had about 60-plus years of a strange, delicate impasse. There's a, a not really an end of the war, but a demilitarized zone and this quiet, careful maneuvering around a central 
and irreconcilable difference. And we have the vice president of the United States is in North Korea this weekend. And he said, the era of strategic patience is over. How much clearer can one be? We just can't wait. We can't sit in this weird liminal place anymore. It's got to be one thing or the other. Are you going to be on our side or are you going to be against us? Likewise, our relationships with Russia, former Soviet Union, that, that Cold War stalemate, it softened after Track 2 diplomacy and after Gorbachev and Yeltsin, but it was always kind of there. We're, we're kind of our enemy. And now that Trump sees, well, I can't just declare these guys to be my friends and they don't embrace me. They still do mean stuff in Syria and they don't tell the truth and I don't know what's really going on. So they're the enemy. So they're bad. Now we got to show them that, that they're not on our side. Or China and Taiwan. You know, the, the China-Taiwan delicate balance that's been really uh, maintained for 50 or more years, uh, that's intolerable to a yes-no, up-down Trump mentality. You know, you can't recognize both. You can only recognize one, even though we're doing business with both. It just doesn't really make sense, does it? But, you know, that's the way diplomacy has always been. None of the world's problems are fully, absolutely resolved. Almost every border between every country has some questionable uh, curves in it that are still being negotiated. Everything's an ongoing negotiation, and a business person should understand that better than everybody. It's a compromise. It's a, a, there's a little bit of denial because the lines that we use to define things, to create ironclad laws and boundaries, they don't really work in the real world. You know, that's what um, that's what fractal mathematics was all about. You know, one of the original examples that, that Mandelbrot used when he was explaining fractals was how do you measure the length of a coastline? You know, do you just walk around the island and then that's the that's the distance that you walked is the distance around the island? Or do you measure each little nook, each little curve in each little rock as you go around the island? If you measure with greater and greater granularity, you're going to get miles and miles of distance longer than you did just walking, because now you're getting each little surface area of each little rock. You could end up with a hundred-mile coast on a, on a two-mile island. So where do you where do you stop? Where do you pick your level of granularity? You know, again, that's something that you just you have to soften your focus. You have to uh, create a certain level of tolerance and decide, okay, we're going to measure it about you know two point five dimensions uh, in order to get around this island. You know, it's like. Uh, Gosh, you know the the rule where you can't drink beer in public, but you can drink beer if it's in a paper bag because then nobody knows 
it's a beer, even though everybody knows it's a beer. <laughs> you're drinking it out of a paper bag. So unless you're going to be searched um, because you're walking around drunk or breaking some other rule, uh, it's accepted that you can walk around with your beer in that little paper bag. And that's the basis of, in some ways, that's the basis of civilization or all of these compromises, all of the wink, wink, nudge, nudge, right? We know, we know you're doing something that we don't really approve of over in your house, but you're not hurting anybody else. So go do it. Just, you know, let it, let it be live and let live. That was the, the rationale even behind the White House Correspondents Dinner. You know, this President Trump is the first president ever to skip the White House Correspondents' Dinner. The whole point of the White House Correspondents' Dinner is to take these two sides, the, the press and the presidency, and whatever uh, animosity is going on between them, that they still get together at one event and they kind of make jokes. And those jokes that they're making, that roast that they're doing of one another and of the president, is their way of playing with that line, pushing that boundary. And you get a, a, a Stephen Colbert or someone comes in and steps maybe over that line a little too much. And that's what we're playing with then as a society. It's how far can you go? How can't you? We're playing with the boundary conditions. Or the the wall between the U.S. and Mexico. Again, we have to have a distinct boundary that no one's allowed to cross. Immigration was really too much of a look-the-other-way kind of thing. What do you mean? They get in, and then if they have a kid, they're kind of allowed to stay, even though they're not legal, but they are. If they do something really wrong, then it was just too... Uh, uh, it was too fuzzy. It was too human. It was too much the way things really are. And that's the big issue with the digital age. There's no tolerance. You know, even skyscrapers are built to sway in the wind. You know, if there's no tolerance, they're just too brittle. They would just break. And if there's no tolerance, it's just boring. It's complete. It's Everything is asked and answered. We know where we stand. It's dead. You know, team human, you know, maybe uniquely, you know, has the ability to tolerate or even to embrace the ambiguities that define our collective experience. You know, does God exist? Yes and no. It's a Mobius strip. We can see it from both sides. We have two hemispheres in our brains, after all. What are they seeing? What are they projecting? They're seeing two things at once and creating a third strange image out of it. Now, yes, we're in a digital age where definitive answers seem ready at the click. But I implore you to hang on to the ambiguity whenever you can, that place where you don't yet have the answer. Don't race to the conclusion. Keep it alive. You know, keep it alive, unanswered, in between, liminal, crazy, human. As people seek out those liminal spaces seemingly erased by digital technologies, many of us are turning to the analog. 
where the tyranny of left, right, up, down, and one, zero don't seem to have the same authority over us. And my friend David Sachs just wrote a book about this very phenomenon called Revenge of the Analog, Why Real Things Matter. And uh, I actually had the privilege of blurbing this, and I thought he didn't use my blurb until I saw it on the inside of the dust jacket, which is even in some ways a very high status blurb position, where I said, the more advanced our digital technologies, the more we come to realize that reality rules. David Sachs reassures us surviving members of Team Human that material existence is alive and well and makes a compelling case for the reclamation of terra firma and all that comes with it. So thank you, David Sachs, for coming on Team Human. Thank you, uh, Douglas Rojkoff, for writing <laughs> that beautiful blurb. And uh, you should stand on your own in the inside jacket and not be crowded in with those other uh, scoundrel blurbers. On exactly, the those log rollers. <laughs> exactly. But, you know, we, we actually met through a um, – I don't – I think it's okay to out our uh, religious heritage. We actually, I, I think, met through uh, – something called Reboot, which was a uh, kind of a, a Jewish experiment that I launched actually way back when, when I wrote Nothing Sacred. And certain aspects of this sort of uh, open source Judaism occurred to me as, as I read the book. And it's strange, I guess, because I was in that context thinking about you as someone I knew through the extended kind of modern Jewish network, that I was thinking about this Jewish prayer called the Unitana Tokef, you know this one that they do on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur? It's where they say, you know, every year it is written who will live and who will die, who will go to heaven, who will go to hell. It's like this very extremely polarized, very dual, almost digital style prayer. But at the very end, it says, you know, that the way we can lessen the severity of the decree of whether you live or die or sick or, or healthy, the way that you, you lessen the severity of the decree is with charity and compassion, which to my mind is the greater message of your book, which is that it's our humanity that really, that attenuates the jaggedness of digital culture. And that's these, these analog devices and, and means of connection really do appeal to that human side of us rather than the more, uh, I don't know, kind of data-driven polar side of us? Well, I think we have to remember that the human side of us is every side of us. Um, there is this phrase that is repeated constantly in not just the world of Silicon Valley and the digital technology business, but in popular culture, in government, in universities, which is, you know, we're living in a digital age, we're living in a digital world. And there was someone who I was interviewing at one point in this book who works in the technology industry. I, I believe he was working either for Twitter or he had some other company involved in, you know, some advanced computer science. And he said, you know, People are always saying we live in the digital world, but it's just—it's nothing but pure BS. Uh, we are flesh and blood creatures. We are human beings, you know, biological creatures spinning on a rock, hurtling through space, and that has always been true, you know, until the day that that changes for you know the cataclysmic reason of uh, let's say wiping ourselves off the planet through nuclear war or um, the great. Uh, rapture of the singularity where we all ascend into the matrix or whatever the hell you know peter thiel is um 
fantasizing about at night. That is going to be true. And I think it is it is that the technology that works best, digital technology or analog technology or a combination of both, is the one that at the end of the day makes us feel more human and makes us have deeper moments of human connection and interaction with each other and even with ourselves. But we don't really get that, say, on Facebook or Twitter. We get something that feels less than human or almost anti-human sometimes. Right. I think it was Sherry Turkle who said, you know, simulation and its discontents, right? Uh -huh. It is the illusion, the trompe d'oeil of... All those years of French words, I barely <laughs> even pronounced that, uh, of, of a human experience, right? Uh, you know, I had someone friend me on Facebook today, and I usually just ignore these things, and I kind of clicked because he knew someone I knew, and he had reached out to me. And he's like, great, now we're BFFs. Yeah. You know, obviously, tongue-in-cheek. But even that, I was just like, man, I don't even know you. I've never met you. Like, this is this is nothing. This is just transactional communications. We are not friends. And I do have some very deep friends who are on Facebook, but none of them who I've become friends with through that. They were friends in the flesh and blood world and will remain so when Facebook was just the means to stay in touch with them. I think it is that illusion of the connectivity, the illusion of a deep human experience that's the temptation of many of these things but often where the failing is greatest. And so you think of something like, you know, you, you extrapolate that to the bigger uh, idealism of, well, let's just say, you know, the internet and social media, right? Mm -hmm. A couple of years ago, you know, at the height of the growth of Facebook when Twitter was just emerging, you know, it was the end of barriers, the globalized world, the end of tribalism, you know, kumbaya, we're all going to hold hands and, you know, the humanity will come together as one brotherhood under ones and zeros. And uh, the reality now, as we've seen in the past couple months even, is the opposite, that these very tools which we thought would bring us together have only served to divide us further, to so discord and conflict and distrust in us in ways that are intrinsically harder to do face-to-face, person-to-person, but are almost inherent in digital technology and in digital communication. Although, it, you know, if you look at it kind of from that that McLuhan-esque sense, this, that with the idea of media environments, which I'll readily admit is overdetermined, which is kind of what you're saying at first, that we say, okay, we're in a television age, so now everyone's going to act like this, and now we're in a digital age, so everyone's going to act like this, as if... There's not still radio and print and speech and touching and bicycles and all, you know, everything from the other age is still here. It's not like we just careened into the, into a totally new, uh, new landscape with completely different rules. Different ages exist simultaneously. But what happened with the net, I feel like, was we were using our, uh, kind of our television era lens on a completely new kind of technology. So the television era was very much about that kind of kumbaya globalism. And we had, you know, the Rockefeller Institute was paying for internationalism in Europe. We had the moon landing that united the world. We had the Olympics by satellite television. We had the TV president, Ronald Reagan, standing at the Berlin Wall saying, you know, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. 
And we got the internet and we thought it would be a continuation of that kind of globalist, everyone can watch Baywatch Kumbaya reality, and instead got this very divisive, polarized, individualized thing. I mean, I'm wondering if, if that's something if that's the true bias of this technology is towards this fragmentation and isolation i i think so and i think if you you know let's take it down to a more personal level by its nature it is fragmentary and isolating right it is something that is done alone when you think about any interaction that you're having on the internet it is alone. Even when you're sitting in a cafe filled with people surrounding you or a classroom or an office, you are, you know, it is a solitary act in a way that's very different even from, you know, earlier digital technology. Take video games, for mm. instance. You know, I have, you know, I, I am 37. I, I, I remember very, very specifically getting the sort of first computer games playing an Atari or ColecoVision in a friend's house. And then, you know, when I turned six, driving across the border to the United States, visiting when I was visiting relatives in Montreal and getting that Nintendo entertainment system. And, you know, that was, you know, it was a digital experience, but it was a very interpersonal act. I would sit there with my brother or friends in a living room, right. wasting away hours. Exactly. But Exactly. Or in it, my it was, era, it was going to the pizzeria and sticking quarters on the Space Invaders. Right. So, feeding yeah. feeding Miss Pac-Man. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and today, you know, I could sit on a crowded streetcar or amidst physically, you know, thousands of people somewhere. Um, and I could play word with friends with people all over the world or, or Worlds of Warcraft or whatever game I want and completely ignore them. And so I think, you know, the the idea is that, yes, we can now bring together disparate people from all over the world, but it also, in doing so, incentivizes people to really ignore those who are around them. And and I think as that happens, the silos just build themselves naturally. And, and I don't think it's something that was inherently thought of in the software. It's just a consequence of of the way that has uh, grown almost organically. Right. And our so our our electronic uh, electronically reproduced music in public goes from the boombox which impacted everyone for better and for worse on the subway to the earbuds which you know isolate us and turn the public space into uh, all these little private ones. Yeah, and listen, there are still those people who are blasting the music on their their phone speakers, which to me is, you know, it's the modern equivalent of the boombox. But it is interesting how we've accepted isolationism from others and from ourselves as almost a benefit. And, you know, I think it's interesting because, you know, inherent in that is this sense of self-importance. Um, mm. Oh, I, I have a call. I'm dealing with something, which is why it's almost rude to ask someone to put down their phone at a dinner table or when they come to your house, right? Oh, well, I'm working. I, I, I'm busy. You know, this is, <laughs> you know, I, I have work. I, I, I was thinking about a friend of mine, good friends, and 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 they came up to, uh, you know, a country house my family has uh, over Christmas time for a couple of days. And, um, you know, one of my friends, she's a partner at a big law firm. And the entire time she was working, she was on her laptop, she was on her phone, she was taking conference calls in the middle of everyone, which is something that would have been unthinkable a couple of years ago, uh, technologically just impossible. And I think more importantly, socially impossible as well, right? You mm -hmm. couldn't 
sit there and, and hog the landline or even work on a laptop 10 years ago in front of everyone or take your, your, you know, your cellular phone call. But today we're so accustomed to people having conversations in front of our faces, interrupting the conversation we might be having them to take another conversation, either it's a text or it's on social media, that, you know, calling them out on that is, is what seems more uncouth and rude than the act of them doing it. Right. And it was bizarre in the old days. I remember I, I was a stage manager of a play and one of the characters, it was, it was comedy. This character was some kind of a stockbroker or business person and he would have to go off because his car phone would ring and he would have to go talk to people at work. And it was, it was the stuff of comedy, not, <laughs> not the way things are. You know, it's funny. I I remember. Uh, I mean, there's a there's a deeper a deeper kind of message in your book about the the way we respond as human beings to living in in such a digitally characterized landscape. And I remember I I hinted at it way back when in uh, maybe like 1995. I wrote this book, Playing the Future, and what I was what I was looking at there was I was comparing the response of the, the, the goth romantics to industrialism you know, 200 years ago to the kind of the goth hedonism industrial culture of the 90s responding to digital. So when I saw, you know, it seemed like the earliest digital kids were also doing extreme sports, which were extremely physical. They were collecting pogs. I don't know if you remember those. those oh, little, sweet pogs. <laughs> little bottle caps. They were doing piercing and scarification. So it seemed like there was not even a conscious, but an unconscious reaction to this, to the ethereal, non-physical quality of the digital that now you're confirming we're seeing it in popular culture with, you know, you, you write about vinyl and the love of vinyl or what books can do that the Kindle can't. Um, so there is a drive. It's not, it's not just fashion. It's a human drive towards some other essence of experience. Well, what I think, you know, it, getting back to what we talked about at the beginning, the, the, the absolutism of, uh, the language of digital, right? You're either a one or a zero, an Apple or a Samsung. It's almost baked into the to the sense that Moore's law is the law that applies to everything in the world, right? That you know, technology will only get better, and we will adopt it, and that is that is all we want, and especially for the younger generations, right? There is this assumption that you know, you see us, you see a four year old with an iPad. And you think, oh my God, look how into that iPad they are. That is all they want. That's all these kids want is iPads. And, you know, they only want digital. That's what drives them. But then, you know, an hour later, that kid has put down the iPad and is outside, you know, playing, hitting a tree with a stick or, you know, rolling around in the sand or running on a beach somewhere or, or, or just swinging on a playground. And that kind of tells a lot of the story of, of what you were just talking about before, which is that... We are, you know, as team human, complicated creatures who will gravitate and use, gravitate toward and use the best technology at our fingertips to do whatever it is that we need or want to do. So whether that's work or whether that's pleasure, right? But we are more complicated and, and our tastes and desires are deeper and greater than what one sort of device or technology can deliver. And so when you think about music, you know, the growth of digital streaming is, you know, as, as technologically perfect as you can get. You can now listen to 
any music at very high quality anywhere you want pretty much for free, right? Mm-hmm. Any album, any song, you know, whatever you want to listen to, you know, a couple taps of your finger and it's there and then you can beam it to any sort of speaker and and you're sort of set, right? And it's funny because it's only when that technology arrived and became widespread that the vinyl revival, which is, you know, 10 years old, really took off and gathered steam and started happening. And mm-hmm. why is that? It's not the rejection of one. It's it's the idea of having complementary experiences. It's saying, okay, now I can have this all-you-can-eat free buffet of every song ever. So what else is there in music? Now that I have that, I can indulge deeply in the stuff I really love by going out and buying you know, melted pieces of plastic um, that play right. with something that has a, you know, a diamond on the top. Exactly. Why uh, buy a CD-ROM at that point of music? which is this weird in-between digital thing. I'm Now I'm going to buy the record and have the full ritual and the full analog recreation of the sound in my, in my space. And so it's neither a rejection of one. It, you know, my, I collect records. I have a couple hundred records. I, I'm consistently buying them. And I also have a subscription to Spotify. And when I'm walking my child to daycare or in the car, that's what I'm listening to. And often I'll go and buy the record that I've listened to a couple times on Spotify to sort of road test it out, right? I think that is how people live. But the problem is, you know, that duality is really hard for those, especially in the technology industry, to grasp. In their mind, progress is a one-way street, and it is either, again, a one or a zero in Apple or Samsung. And, and the idea that we would knowingly bring old technology and new technology into our lives even though they appear to be in conflict, is something that is very hard for them to wrap their heads around because it it challenges this narrative of unending, you know, pure, directly driven progress. Right. So does our attraction for the analog then threaten Moore's Law? No, I, I think Moore's Law needs to be understood as a physical law of shrinking the size of processors and that's what's at the heart of all our electronics. But it does not necessarily apply in the same way to the greater world, which is vastly more complex and where things like emotions and social status and nostalgia and again, chemistry and real interpersonal interactions, things like romance play, right? You can't apply math to those things and get a clean answer. They are very sort of human experiences. And, you know, one of the things about the human experience that is frustrating and, you know, a pain point, as the people in in the tech world would call, you know, seeming to be overcome, is that it is inefficient and it is illogical. I always say to people, you know, the world of digital, the world of computers, Silicon Valley, you know, it holds the belief that we are Spock, right? We are logical creatures and we will do the most logical thing. We will buy books on Amazon because that is the cheapest place to buy them and the quickest place to buy them and, and the most efficient. And yet independent bookstores and sales of physical books have been growing, not because it's the most logical place to shop. You'll pay more money there. It requires, you know, leaving your house and finding a place and often ordering a book that they may not have but for the illogical reasons that we're doing it. And that is because we enjoy shopping there because it gives us pleasure. It gives us 
something to do, somewhere to go. It gives us a social interaction with the individuals who work there. We might build relationships. We might learn new things. We might just feel good about ourselves because we have an hour to kill on a Saturday afternoon and we happen to be in a neighborhood where we know there's a good bookstore, right? That is not a Spock experience. That's a Kirk experience. And, you know, in many ways, that's who we are. We are the humans. But the the increasing, and I, I hesitate to use the word, but uh, fetish, fetishization of analog experiences starts to make me worry that analog reality is going to end up for the wealthy only, you know, <laughs> put all the poor people in little rooms, let them sit, you know, operating drones and getting all their entertainment on flat screens. And if you're wealthy enough, well, then you can go have vinyl or step in a lake or do all those uh, those things that you need real space and air and resources to get. I, I think, you know, the reality is that analog is a luxury, but it is not a tremendous financial luxury. If you are talking about buying a Patek Philippe watch and that is your analog luxury, yes, that is, <laughs> you know, a decidedly one percentile luxury. But, you know, anyone can go and pick up a pack of cards and play cards with a bunch of friends. Any kid can go outside and run around outside, even if they don't have a playground in their backyard. The public library system still has all sorts of analog experiences available that you don't have to pay for. And the essential element of the analog experience has no cost, and that is interpersonal interactions. That is looking someone face-to-face and talking to them and sharing an experience with them that is not mediated by a screen or any other technology. I know the danger of that, of course, is that those are very difficult for the market to deal with. You know, every time that you spend an hour looking into a friend's eyes is an hour that you're not consuming or producing anything for the marketplace. Well, it depends on what the marketplace is. And, and so if you were in the marketplace of offering those experiences, say a restaurant or a bar, you can capitalize on that. If you are offering up a decidedly analog experience like a board game store and cafe or a theater, for example, or even a movie theater or you know a mall, that is your selling point, right? That is what you are able to market. And there are many companies now that are doing that. There was a commercial I saw recently for Loblaws, sort of a big national grocery chain here in Canada, kind of like Trader Joe's meets Safeway or whatever. You know, and it was the mother and the kid coming home from work and school, they're on their phones and then they put down the phone and they decide to pull out the the food and they start cooking and talking and they bring the table into the hall with the apartment and then the neighbors come home and you know everybody puts their phones away and shares a meal. La 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 la, that's life. This same campaign is being drummed home for everything from cars to clothes to insurance products. Um, uh, you know, analog has become, in many ways, you know, a, a, a saleable thing because the digital experience is so ubiquitous and flat, it's kind of hard to make it sexy anymore. Right. Well, it's also, I mean, it's very utilitarian. You know, it seems to always move towards that, whereas the analog, there's always some opportunity for pleasure. Even if you're working, you know, you could love your tools the way, uh, uh, you know, the way an auto mechanic or an author with his pen, you know, is there's a, a, a joy to it that uh, the digital doesn't give you that kind of that textural feedback. 
No. And, and I think, you know, there's, there is, as Jack White said, uh, you know, there's no romance in a mouse click. Um, it works. It is the most effective, um, powerful, standardized technology, which is what's great about it, which is why you and I are talking through a computer and we have not sort of gone and created some long tin can <laughs> with the string uh, from, you know, upstate New York to, to Toronto where I live. Or I guess that would be a landline telephone, yeah. <laughs> essentially. You know, it, it is effective, but there is no lever in that. So when you think about Spotify versus the record store, you know, there's no romance in Spotify. It is, it is, this is the easiest, most effective, cheapest way to stream, you know, all the music you want. And that's what's going to work. And until something better comes around, that's what you're going to use. Or then, you know, Apple Music gets cheaper or, or gets a few artists that you like. And that's the one that people switch to. So it's not the inefficiency that makes analog romantic. What, what do you think it is? It's, it, I mean, it's not that there's other values in it. It's almost like the values are are coincidental to how they happen to work. I think I think the inefficiency is part of it because you know inefficiency means it isn't easy to use. It it is you know not difficult, not not you know rocket science, but it it requires a bit more work. It requires a bit of knowledge, a bit of sacrifice financial sacrifice, sacrifice in terms of time, sacrifice in terms of physical space. And, you know, anytime we are forced to do a little more work with something and put more effort into it, the rewards we get are increased. So, you know, let's, let's take a metaphor and talk about cooking. You know, the most efficient way to get your meals and calories is, you know, highly scientific um, highly processed foods, right? So whether it's a microwavable dinner or some sort of Silicon Valley soylent crap that, you know, someone's engineered for you to drink, that's the most efficient way to get it. And, well, and you know, possibly, you know, I mean, or it might be missing some crucial life energy and you just <laughs> slowly turn. You take brain. that in pills. Right. Yeah. Or, or, um, or, you know, you, you'll, you'll, you'll get your brain frozen and, and Peter Thiel will, will right. it later on. Um, uh, but when you think about that versus, you know, where the Vanguard and cooking has been going over the past couple of years, which is almost a return to sort of 19th century ways of cooking, right? Thinking about bread, you know, we scientifically as a society perfected bread in the way that we thought about it in, you know, the mid 20th century bread that had a long shelf life, bread that had a consistent taste from from person to person, bread that was inexpensive to produce and inexpensive to buy, which did a lot towards, you know, alleviating hunger. But the thing about that bread is that it took no effort to make, even, you know, one of those commercial bread makers that you can buy in your house, mm. right? Um, the bread tasted lifeless. The bread didn't taste so good. And so people have now gone back to making their own sourdoughs, making their own cultures with, you know, fermentation and yeast and bacteria because, not only is the process that much more challenging, but the result that comes out of that is A, more delicious, and B, there is a pride in that, right? There is a pride that I made this bread. Mm. Eat this bread that I made, Doug. This is this is my sourdough. Um, I've never actually – I don't hear boss. <laughs> well, but no, but it's also <laughs> – I have sourdough starters sitting in my fridge for four But it's months. fun and <laughs> connected. And, you know, I mean, we, we've seen that from micro-brews and craft beers to heirloom tomatoes. There's that sense of, of that you're connected to something uh, real. 
Right. And I think, you know, the majority of us want to have that, but we know that we're not going to only have that, right? We're still going to be, want to be able to go to the supermarket in, in November, December, and just buy some tomato that was grown in California. Or if we have to pick up a loaf of, you know, Wonder Bread or processed bread, because that's all the kids are going to eat. Um, <laughs> but we also want that duality of it. And I think we need that in our life. We need things beyond just what our screens can give us. We need experiences that move us outside, that move us into contact with other people. And I think the assumption that that is all that we need because we can deliver everything in terms of work, in terms of romance, in terms of friendship, or in terms of entertainment to ourselves through these screens is a naive one. And it is naive because it ignores the fact that human beings are at their most human when they're with other human beings and doing things with them and interacting with all our five senses. And so what's amazing to me is not how surprising the, you know, revenge of analog has been, as, as I call it. Um, it's that people are so surprised that it's actually happening, that, that they're so astounded about this and they can't understand why, when to me it's just a very sort of human experience, right? We're always going to want something that makes us feel a little more alive. Right. I mean, and it's also because, I mean, and, and some of our, our conversation falls into this trap. It's a lot of people are looking at it from a consumerist perspective. Oh, why are they buying this instead of buying that? So it becomes a very kind of upper middle class conversation about, oh, well, I prefer vinyl to my Pandora, you know, <laughs> as opposed to, you know, somebody who doesn't have access to either uh, to either one. But the the other side, and you, you do go into this in your in your book a lot, the, the other side of this is really looking at it from the perspective of labor rather than the perspective of the consumer, that you know, delivery is being automated, our, our jobs are being roboticized, our processes are being taken over by algorithms, and the world is being made really, in some sense, more accommodating to uh, to robots, to digital delivery, to, to uh, self-driving cars, and less accommodating to, you know, humans and our analog needs. Yeah, I, I think that is the bigger, you know, the bigger context to which frame it in. And, and I think that what's interesting about that is, again, the, the notion that, you know, digital is the future, uh, whatever industry you're in, and investing in anything that isn't is foolhardy. Right, it doesn't scale, so why invest in it? Yeah, And that goes whether you're an individual investor who might be an angel investor or might invest in a venture capital fund, let's say if you're a pension fund, or whether you are a government or a university or a city trying to establish the priorities for where, you know, tax dollars or, or grants. Or go. a small business person trying to do something that actually needs human actors to, to happen. People look at that and the bank and investors look at you and say, you're crazy. What, you need 10 employees to do this. You know, why would I invest in that? Right. You know, if, this doesn't scale. Right. Um, and the reality is that, you know, 90 something percent of businesses out there in the world are analog businesses. And yes, they might use computers here and there, but you know, we've we're so astounded and and Google-eyed by the mega, you know, almost overnight success of companies such as Uber and Google and Facebook that we keep forgetting, you know, they're called unicorns for a reason. Mm. They are 
such a small percentage. They are such outliers. And yes, they can accumulate tremendous capital, but you know, the dry cleaner around the corner from you and the restaurant and the flower shop uh, and the company that's, you know, making and distributing small machined parts for dishwashers, those remain core parts of, of our economy and they need people. They need people to provide value to them. And that's this that's true in digital business. I mean, I just I'm going to Philadelphia this weekend and I'm going with my wife and baby and, you know, I booked a room on hotels.com, but I wanted to see it was a little bit closer to the date. Maybe there was something better, something that would have a separate room for the baby so everybody can sleep well. And I call, I saw hotels.com, I went on, I saw some things, but I, they had a number and it said, call, it's free. So I called and I spoke to someone and he helped me and he answered my questions <laughs> and walked me through it. And it was pleasant. And we made jokes about sleeping in the same hotel room with a little baby and how they're the worst roommates, right? Uh that provided not only you know some sort of emotional benefit it was a commercial benefit it gave an advantage to hotels.com over kayak or you know expedia or whoever um who may have had a room for you know four dollars cheaper a night uh, and so now i will gravitate towards that because again there is not just value in the automated chatbot um there is increasing value because of the automated chatbots in the human non-bot chatting person right well i mean the interesting dilemma we're in now is you know we we could uh, here in the states we can go fight for uh say a 15 dollar minimum wage and demand that everyone gets that and what that would really do though when mcdonald's sees well if we're gonna have to pay these kids 15 bucks an hour then maybe getting that automatic touchscreen uh uh ordering station for customers Maybe now it's finally worth it. You know, so in some ways, I feel like the 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 underlying premise of Revenge of the Analog is our uh, well-placed concern about being in competition with with machines for for our jobs and our livelihoods. Yeah, that that's definitely a strong element of it. And I think it's the notion that we, we are moving in one direction and there's nothing we can do about it. And, and, you know, when you look at the analog goods and industries and, and corners of the market that have grown, and that's why I sort of specifically focused it on business and less on the psychological and emotional reasons why mm. though, you know, I touch on it here and there, you see that that is that, that, you know, it is not the entire story, right? It is not just a one-way street of disruption. And, and you know, I think the best example of that beyond the vinyl thing is the independent bookstore. You know, in this day and age, who would ever think that after 22 years of Amazon.com selling books and gobbling up market share, that independent bookstores would be growing at a faster rate than something like Barnes & Noble and, and profiting and so I think, you know, we're as consistently worried we are about our jobs being automated, which has been happening, you know, starting the audio, auto manufacturing industry since the 1970s. Mm. There, not only will there always be a place for humans in work, but the place of humans and the humanness of humans will accrue an added value. Um, so that, you know, you're the fast food chain or you're the coffee shop that only uses robot baristas. Great. Come to my coffee shop because we have a real human who's going to talk to you, make the drink exactly the way you want it, 
but also talk to you, smile with you, make you feel a little bit better about your day. And yeah, you're going to pay 50 cents extra for that coffee, but you'll like it more. Yeah, I mean, there does seem to be, uh, you know, beyond the uh, kind of the trendy consumerism of the analog, which is the part that makes me most uncomfortable with the conversation. And I know that's not the way you mean it, but there's a, there's a part of me that's like, oh, well, you know, the analog is is the new craft beer. It's the new trend for those who can afford it, but that it's... it's a You can buy all this stuff in Urban Outfitters. Yeah, so. that it's a fringe or cultural, creative, uh, East Coast, non-Trumpian thing, when it's not. You know, when it when you, you really do mean something much broader and and more deeply felt than our precious uh, purchases of, uh, you know, high quality organic oats, you know, that it's it's bigger than that. It is the kid just playing outside, touching the grass, throwing a rock, going in water, having a conversation, you know, having sex instead of internet porn you know there's there's experiences that everybody has that are uh, in in uh, stark contrast to these digital ones but there's also a, a implicit in the book and actually explicit toward the end there's a, an ethic to analog as well you know that our experiences in the analog world have a, an ethical tug to them. There's a limit to how much time a person can spend doing something. There's a limit to how much stuff you can dig out of the ground. And there's an analog reality to every digital experience, to every smartphone that you look in. There's the kid that was sent into the cave in Africa to get the rare earth metal. You know, so there are analog externalities even to the digital. Right. We, we are still bound by the laws of this, you know, spinning rock hurtling through space and, and the physics that, that rule over all of that. Well, and the limitations that rule over all of it then end up, they end up eliciting a, a moral, an ethical component that's not elicited really so much by digital, which seems infinite and consequenceless. Right. And, and you know, we're seeing that and we're also seeing that it isn't consequenceless from from the from the child in Congo digging up the rare earth metals and you know all all the environmental health and economic consequences of that the political consequences the trolls social mm. media cybersecurity i mean we are seeing this happen in real time we we are seeing that none of this just happens in the realm of a hard drive but actually reverberates out into the world of flesh and blood consequences. You know, I, I think back to 2009 when Twitter was really at its pinnacle. And this was before the Arab Spring, but it was when the protests in Iran had happened after the re-election of uh, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad. And I remember people talking that this was a new era of social networks and, you know, the world would be decided by the voice of the people and not the guns and not the generals. And, you know, while we view these things through our screen and think that they are just more things that happen on social media, you know, the, the consequences are always ultimately felt um, in flesh and blood out in the real world. And, uh, and so, you know, that is not going to be any different this time. How's that for a happy? That's, <laughs> well, it's, it's, if if not happy, the 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 idea, as I see it, is the the return to the analog, is a uh, is the way we ground ourselves 
in reality enough to do what is necessary to sustain our species. The analog is going to come back, as you as you would point out in the book. The analog is going to have its revenge one way or the other. You know? Right. Right. So uh, let's uh, let's embrace it and uh, and and have our revenge with it rather than uh, uh, underneath it. <laughs> but David Sex, I want to oh. I want to thank you for Revenge of the Analog and for uh, and for being on Team Human. Well, I am a proud card carrying member of the team, so I really appreciate it. Thank you. And thank you all for listening to Team Human today, an analog production in uh, some digital form. Team Human is a production of the Laboratory for Digital Humanism at Queens College and supported entirely by listeners like you. Come visit us at teamhuman.fm for more about our guests, links to get involved, and ways to support this show. Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.